You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please consider helping the show out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right. Time to get in another little plug for that uh, Patreon page. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you and you would like to see the podcast keep going strong, please consider becoming a patron of our show. You can go to patreon.com slash Island, and there you can sign up as a patron. You get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of the Curse of Oak Island. And it's so much fun. So come and join us for that. And we have a couple of new patrons to thank this week. Uh, three new patrons. Very exciting stuff. Let's welcome Philip. Let's welcome Dennis. And let's welcome Welsh Dave. Welcome to the finally all of, family, all of you. And uh, again, thank you so much for your support. Three members in one week. Awesome. Uh, anyway, it's uh, patreon.com slash digging Oak Island. Sign up, support the podcast. Five bucks a month. Cancel anytime. If you also don't want to do the monthly thing, but you want to support the podcast monetarily, you could do so with a one-time donation via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. That's my musician's virtual tip jar thing that I use there. So you can uh, do that if you want to. Thank you so much for everybody who has. And thank you again for those new patrons. Guys, so great to have you. Come and join us during the uh, the live broadcast of the show because they are just so much fun. All right. As I always like to do, we're going to start today's podcast with the emails and messages from you, the listeners. Let's begin with Lori, who writes, Hi, Dave. Just a short email. Everyone talks about how good the Curse of Oak Island is, even comparing it to Gilligan's Island. But for me, your podcast is every bit as entertaining, and it adds tremendously to my enjoyment of the Curse of Oak Island experience. Thank you for your dedication to the show and to the fans who look forward every week to the discussions and insight you share. Digging Oak Island podcast is gold. Lori in Ontario. Well, shucks, Lori. Guys, I couldn't help but read that one. It was such a nice email. Thank you so much for writing in. Uh, I'm really glad you guys are enjoying the show. I'd love to hear that kind of stuff. Keeps me going, right? Keeps me doing this. Keeps me doing the research and talking to people and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, Lori, again, thank you. Keep writing in. All right, let's hear now from our great friend, Bernie, who writes, Hey, bud, I don't really have anything to add to the podcast with this email. I just wanted to send you this message to say thank you for the interview with Corian and Chris. That was so fun to listen to and very informative. It was great. Also, I'm not sure if you remember this or not, but early on, my theory had to do with the French and the American Revolution. I had long given up on that, but even though it isn't exactly a match... What they let slip out at the end of the pod made me very happy. It was almost a feeling of justification for all those years I have poured into this show and mystery. I hope you and yours are doing well. Thank you for all you're doing. Bernie. Bernie, yeah, I hope you guys are doing great. It's always great to hear from you, my man. Um, and those two last week really brought it. I mean, Corian always brings We've had him a couple times, but uh, and that was the first time talking to Chris. What a great guy. What a great mind. Both of them. It's amazing. Um, and let me add that you guys, people listening to this podcast, you're going to love their book. Whether you believe in the theory at the end of the day or not, I don't think that really matters as much. I mean, obviously, that's the goal they have for the book. But the way the book is written, 
and the story it follows and the path it follows, you're going to love it. Again, it's called The Jerusalem Files, The Secret Journey of the Menorah to Oak Island. And it hits stores on February 13th, I believe. The plan is to have those guys back on the podcast as part of the summer off-season stuff where we can talk a lot more about their theory and a lot more about the book after we've given you guys a few months to kind of get it and read it. Maybe even come up with your own questions. You know, it's very exciting stuff. You kind of love it. And listen, they're both great guys, right? So I have no problem sitting here plugging this book because they've always supported us and I want us to do everything we can to support them. So again, it's The Jerusalem Files, The Secret Journey of the Menorah to Oak Island by Corey and Maul and Chris Morford. It's actually available for pre-order now if you really want to. So you can, uh, even on Amazon, everywhere. So let's support them as best we can because they've always been there for us. All right. Now we have quite a few lengthy emails to read and discuss. This podcast is going to be mostly about these emails. So let's get right to it. Let's start with Corey, who writes, and this is a good one. Hi, Dave. I just wanted to add some information that I've learned around the Duke Johnville expedition and the alleged ship log document mentioning treasure and digging a pit. I've been doing a lot of research about the Mahone Bay, Halifax area in the middle 1700s, which leads me to believe the ship's log Doug Kroll has referenced is likely a fake. In my research, I used as many original sources as possible. I've noticed that there is a lot of disinformation and errors that have been published as fact about this period. Luckily, I am able to read French, and the French and Canadian governments have published online many of the original documents for free. So then he writes, one, from about 1701, there was a small village called, and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try it, Merlegesh situated on the, pen- on the peninsula in Mahone Bay, where Chester is located now. Historically, Mirlegesh has been wrongly located at Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, but all the maps made in the 18th century and before place it in Mahone Bay. Oak Island is visible and a short canoe ride away from Chester, so there is no possible way any crew could secretly deposit a treasure there in 1746. Two, the Duke Donville fleet was ordered to harbor in Chibucto Bay, which is now known as Halifax Bay. The Duke's initial goal was not to retake Louisbourg, but to recapture Annapolis Royal, which was the capital of Nova Scotia at the time. He needed a safe, defensible harbor that could house dozens of ships and several thousand men. The bay was chosen before the voyage began, so there would be no need for a pay ship, in quotes, to wander the coastline looking for a good place to anchor. Three, there was a contingent of Canadians which marched down from Quebec led by de Ramazé and a, and a group of Mi'kmaq led by a Jesuit missionary priest named Jean-Louis Latoitre, <laughs> I'm terrible at French, which had been pre-organized to meet the fleet in Chibucto Bay. Four, four ships arrived in Nova Scotia, head of the main fleet in 1746, June of 1746. The frigate La Aurora and the frigate La Castor with two unnamed schooners. They were captured, they captured a pair of English ships and took the crews as captives. When the Duke d'Anville's fleet didn't arrive, they returned to France in late 1746, leaving the captives with the Ramazé to march back to Quebec. The do- four, the document Kroll referenced has dated entries from the 2nd of September to the 16th of September. There were no French ships from the Duke d'Anville from his fleet on the coast of Nova Scotia from the 2nd to the 16th of September. The Duke d'Anville's ship 
and the eight others only arrived in Chibuktu Bay on the 20th of September. He died and was buried on the 27th of September, the same day as 35 more ships arrived. Number five, the document doesn't name the new bay they dug the pit in. However, the French made a map of Nova Scotia in 1744, which all of the ships and the fleet would have had access to that identifies what is now Mahone Bay as the village on its northern shore of Merlegesh. The document described, quote, a deep bay with hundreds of small islands, end quote, invoking a description of Mahone Bay. Even in 1746, Mahone Bay could not be confused with Chibuktu Bay as there are only five islands in Chibuktu Bay. Additionally, if the log had been real, with such details like the pit's dimensions, they would not have omitted the well-known name of the bay where they were digging it in. Further, the documents describe the bay as, quote, not as large as Chibuktu Bay, although Mahone Bay is several times larger than Chibuktu Bay. The Duke Donville fleet even made a detailed map of Chibuktu Bay in October of 1746. Six. We're almost done. The format of the entries and the information provided within each entry in the document is not consistent with any of the French ship logs from the 1700s that are available online in any archive. Seven. The specific wording used in the translated documents is not consistent with French writing of the time. In the entry for the 8th of September, the document simply refers to the Duc d'Anville as Donville, which would have been highly disrespectful of the Duke's position in the French royal court and would never have been recorded in an official document without his title, Le Duc d'Anville. Eight, I could not find any French document, French source document of the English translation of a ship's log nor anything that resembles it in the French archives, Canadian archives, Nova Scotia archives, New France archives, or Quebec archives. I believe the document was created as false evidence to point Oak Island treasure hunters towards the Duke Donville as the creator of the money pit. By whom and when, I have no idea, but I don't think it's real. If you have any questions or would like some more details, let me know. Kind regards, Corey. Okay, I think you guys are going to hear me say this more than once today. But again, wow, just wow. I'm always in awe of the listeners of this show. Unbelievable, Corey. Great, great stuff. I mean, you, you, you know, even though you've burst some bubbles here for sure, I'm not sure what else I can add to this that you have because you covered it all so well, but I would love to pick your brain sometime about your research. Um, the thing that sticks in my head the most, there's two things that stick in my head the most from what you write here. The first thing is that the format of the entries and the information provided within each document is not consistent with any other French logs from the 1700s. That's big. Now, if you're trying to come up with something that tells me they were doing it informally, okay, but that's not a ship's log. A ship's log is always formal, no matter what ship it is, really, you know? And the other thing that sticks in my head the most here is that um, when you wrote about this document, you said, quote, if the log had been real with such details like the pit's dimension, they would not have omitted the well-known name of the bay they were digging it in. I mean, you give all the details of what is there, right, and how to get it, but you don't say where to go to get it. I mean, what's the point of that? The way the document is detailed and yet not at the same time detailed, you know, it's very detailed, but also not detailed, not importantly detailed, just kind of feels suspicious to me too, now that you've pointed this out. 
I'm going to read it again. I'm going to look through it again and see if I can't uh, come with a little bit more on this. Uh, and I hope you're continuing your research, Corey. Um, this is just great, great stuff. Uh, anything you find in your research that will help us here, do not hesitate to send it along. Uh, I'm going to email you back soon. I already have, but um, I've got some questions or two, so I'll get to that probably next week sometime. Thank you so, so much. Now, speaking of bursting bubbles, a listener named Bill has his pin aimed at a couple of other bubbles with this email. He writes, hey, Dave, in the evening, this evening's crackpot session, and he's referring to last week's show, not the one we just watched, but the week before that. Alex Lagina perceptively asks Scott Clark if Charles Morris ever used the A with a V-shaped crossbar on other maps, and Clark says no. Unless this was massively deceptively edited, Clark is dead wrong, intentionally or unintentionally. A simple Google search provides a wealth of Morris maps where he uses that crooked A all over the place. For example, a link the above map, and I'll put the links in our Facebook page, called A... Number one, a chart of the seacoast of Nova Scotia has many prominent examples in the capital lettered sections, but nothing near or pointing towards Oak Island, which is unlabeled. Mahone Bay is in lowercase. Even more telling, for example, map seven, again, I'll put these all out there for you, called A Plan of the Town of St. Andrews, uses the style of A through, the, through its title, where it can't be taken to be any kind of pointer unless it's implying a grail of some sort in that town. In fact, if you look at all seven maps, you could find that fancy A on all but one of them in either map labels or titles. Moreover, you see that kind of A in all sorts of hands, inscriptions, and typefaces. My suspicion is that's Morris's favorite type of A, and with the A with a straight crossbar and bay on Clark's map is the exception. It's probably slightly compressed and extra slanted to the right because of the line radiating from the compass rose right next to it. Because it's slightly squished, there might not have been enough room for the nice V-shaped crossbar. Now, could Clark be right that in one map, Morris was pointing out something specific to others, to other initiates in the occult treasure lore? Sure, but why Morris would do that in such a fashion is beyond me, and how they know to look for it in that one map of the many he did and is another question that suggests itself. Finally, Clark's argument that he found the letter form in Templar-related texts is weak unless he can show that it's not used outside those contexts, just as Alex's question pointed out with regard to Morris's cartographic output. I don't want to impugn Clark, as he might well be a victim of Edding, and Charles Barkhouse's seeming confirmation that this symbol was used for something in Freemasonry adds an iota of plausibility, but as you've often alluded, the Templar-Freemason link is largely a matter of retconning. Still, Clark's credibility doesn't look good if he did flatly deny that Morris didn't use such an A in any other maps, when he clearly did all the time in contexts that have not even a distant relation to Masonic treasure hunts. Bottom line, before printing, letter forms frequently varied, even by the same hand, in both carvings and handwritings, and the V-shaped crossbar A shows up all over the place. Keep up the great work, and maybe someday I'll write you about something other than a symbol. I first wrote because of the forked symbol Corian Mall and the guys found on a flat stone on the seashore. All the best, Bill in Wisconsin. That's it, Bill. The bubbles burst. 
And unless someone can prove otherwise, as far as I'm concerned, we could take Clark's theory from the war room session and put it out with the trash. I mean, maybe that was a little harsh, but we can certainly stick it in a drawer. That's maybe a better way to say it. Now, if Mr. Clark listens to the show, and why wouldn't he? I would happily give him a chance to answer this and correct the record. But from what I see here, this is enough for me to cross this one off the list of possible theories, and not simply because of the possible dishonest nature of the war room and the information given, right? Also from the things that you've proven here about this, right? I will put this map that Bill is referencing. I wrote this, I said this to you before on our Facebook page for you guys to decide for yourself. I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, in my mind at this point and what we know, there is no evidence to back up Clark's theory. The fact that the A's on the side of Clark's map make a circle that crosses through Oak Island is admittedly very cool, but at this point seems nothing but coincidental to me. Now, if you disagree, let me know. But hiding clues like this by using something certainly not unique to this map and add to that the misinformation about the Crooked A and how long he's used it, I think I've seen enough. Again, what great listeners we have. I mean, I have the best listeners to any podcast anywhere. I don't care what anybody says. That's just a fact. Bill, this is incredible work. And what blows me away about it is that someone in the research department of Prometheus didn't do the same simple Google search of Morris's other maps after Clark made this claim that he never used the Crooked A anywhere else, just like you did. It took you two minutes on Google, as you say, and every, if they had done that, everyone would have, it would have helped everyone out quite a bit, right? Bill, my friend, keep these emails coming, man. As they used to say in NASA, you are a steely-eyed missile man. That is a great spot. You hit this one over the fence. Now, with that same subject in mind, uh, let's do uh, uh, about this crackpot session with Clark, um, Let's, you know, and these things, crackpot sessions bring out the best in our listeners, right? But with that session in mind, here is a Jersey boy named Mike, a fellow Jersey boy. He writes, hey, Dave, thank you for the podcast. Love it. My idea question is, I wonder if the team fleshed this out. The symbol for the grail of the A with the crooked center line that was on the pillar in Europe that had the had HIC before it, and the guide said HIC is here in Latin. But what they didn't say was how Latin was a lot in common with other newer European languages. So the pillar actually said the Holy Grail was here. If the map pointing to Oak Island was a place where the Grail was kept, that would mean that it was only one place on its ever-going journey, and it was likely moved a long time ago. So I wonder if someone is trying to track the Grail by finding all of these places that have been marked and putting them in a timeline. I could be completely wrong about this, but I thought I would share the idea to see if you can correct or affirm for me. Thank you, Mike from the Jersey Shore. P.S. Are you still doing the radio show? Mike, let me answer that P.S. first. Yes, I am. It's actually a it's actually two radio shows back to back on WDVR FM, which is in Surgeonsville, New Jersey, in Western Jersey, beautiful part of New Jersey. Uh, the first show is called The Bourbon Street Bistro, playing you the music of New Orleans from 2 to 4 p.m. And then I do a show from 4 to 5 called Island Vibes which is sort of a collection of sort of different summer tropical tunes, some trop rocks, reggae, calypso, that kind of thing. Uh, it's so much fun to do. You can listen live Wednesdays, I said, between 2 to 5 p.m. on 89.7 FM if you're in western New Jersey 
or you can find it online wdvrfm.org that's the station's website and also on that website there we have two weeks worth of archive shows available so you can always go back and listen later if you can't listen live on Wednesdays okay as far as the rest of your email is concerned impressive stuff Uh, I love where your mind's going with this but I think you know now why I saved it until after I read Bill's email (laughs) right As far as I'm concerned, at this point, excuse me, I've been dealing with a cough for weeks. As far as I'm concerned, the validity of this map theory is too low in doubt now to really put any stock in it. Also, I mean this not to sound like I'm dismissing you at all, but I'm just not one who believes in these holy grail conspiracy theories. I don't think such an item exists. I believe people believed at some point that such an item exists and they might have been in possession of it. But I do not think there was some vast worldwide conspiracy to hide its location and at the same time track it for some future generations to rediscover. I just haven't seen anything to convince me, any kind of evidence to convince me of that. As cool as the idea is, right? Great stuff, Mike. And yes, folks, being from the Jersey Shore, as he said, is definitely how you say that. There's a couple of different jerseys and the shore is one of them. All right, let's finish up the email sections here with another good long email This is from a listener named Plato who writes, Dave, great show. I couldn't agree with you more about so many things you say and bring up. I really hope the show can shake the need to feed the treasure hunters and evolve into the science-related show the viewers like me seem to want. I don't want to waste much time with with, uh, my history with the island, but it is similar to Marty and Rick. I read about Oak Island in a magazine article in the 1980s while I was trying to leave my job as a geologist in the oil fields. I wrote Dan Blankenship with a resume and applied offering my services. I probably should have driven up there so he could have thrown me out in person, and then I would have had a real story. Needless to say, he never responded, and I eventually transformed into environmental hydrology, transitioned into environmental hydrology. Hydrogeology. You guys, you're too much for me sometimes. I'm I'm just a podcaster and a musician, man. I I don't have these kind of things to even pronounce stuff like hydrogeology. Anyway, this is similar to the listener you quoted a few shows back named Patrick. I agree with all three of the points he made. It made me realize that it might help to have a graphic that will let you visualize the island's hydrogeology. Attached is a draft I'm sharing with you in hopes we can get it more refined or drawn by someone like your wonderful wonderful artists they use on the show. The point is that I believe the depositor shaft was not very deep maybe four to 50, 40 to 50 feet. Then there was an offset chamber that was backfilled. The shaft extended below the ground level, blue line, but only a small water, a small amount of water may have entered the shaft because of the low permeability of the soil at depth. The cross section I created is just to show how the original depositors could have excavated the shaft below the groundwater level and kept it dewatered if it was in less permeable formation. My cross-section is crude and simplified. If the hive mind had access to Terry's drilling logs, then much more accurate cross-sections could be created. When the Onslow company continued, uh, company continued the shaft deeper, they eventually reached a high permeability layer or possibly interbedded layers of sand or gravel. These high permeable lenses are what were dubbed the flood tunnels. The other fact I have heard you question is why did the garden shaft fill with water so much more quickly after the recent storm than when it was first encountered? 
My response is we don't know how long it originally took to lower the water depth in the garden shaft. The garden shaft just appeared one day and it didn't have water in it. If the garden shaft is excavated solely in less permeable soil, once it is dewatered, it may not fill again quickly. However, the complex network of horizontal shafts and vaults connected to it may take considerable dump pumping of water. After the storm, infiltration will continue for weeks through the numerous abandoned spaces. I can't wait to see how they explain the sudden disappearance of the water. Let me know if you see any changes or corrections I can make on the draft section before you make it public. Thanks, Plato. And Plato and I discussed this, and I will make it public uh, on our Facebook page, so go and check it out. It is absolutely fantastic. And again, I have to say it, I mean... There are so many people who listen to this podcast who should be doing this podcast more than me. There's so many incredible listeners that we have, so many smart people in so many great fields that help us. Uh, you know, I don't know what we would be here without you guys. It's just, it's amazing. Anyway, I'm going to put his graphic so you can visualize his theory here on the Facebook. And I think the thing that puzzles me is all, and I mean all, reports throughout history of the treasure hunt at the money pit, says that water from the flood tunnels was salt water and even raised and lowered with the tides in some reports. Yet, even though we hear the words booby trap flood tunnel as often as possible when they're discussing this issue at the garden shaft, we get no mention of whether or not it is salt water. Why not? Because if it's not salt water, then we are what we are mentioning. Why are we mentioning the booby trap system at all? Right. If it's not salt water, that was supposed to be water flooding in from the ocean at Smith's Cove into the money pit. So if this water is fresh, we could conclude pretty definitively. It ain't the booby trap. Great stuff, Plato. Don't be a stranger. Now we're going to need you to uh, keep checking this stuff out. And I think there's going to be a lot of stuff in the rest of this season. That's going to be right in your wheelhouse here. So, uh, don't hesitate to keep writing in. And I also think the other th question I had with regards to the, the um, and maybe you answered this and I'm just not understanding, is when they first excavated the garden shaft and they had it open for however long they had, which was much of last summer, it was not filling in with water. Then it was filled in with water at the beginning of this season. And then, of course, that got worse after the, um, the flooding from the rain. I don't know that I'm quite understanding exactly how that could be, but I know what you're saying here is that as this rain kind of subsides, it should begin to dry out. So let's see if that's exactly what happens. Uh, okay, folks, that's all for the emails today. Whew, tough one. Tough one for me to, to pronounce all those difficult words in French. Um, don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, it is time now to discuss Season 11, Episode 10 of the Curse of Oak Island called Chain Reaction. Let's start over at Lot 5, where we see the team at the Interpretive Center taking a look at a couple of items found last week. Uh, that decorative-looking spike thing and a stone which have the car uh, carved line in it. Laird said this, says the stone looks just like what he is called a whetstone. He's pretty definitive about this. Um, and that's a stone used to sharpen metal tools. Emma confirms this is the case uh, by the traces of the iron residue she found on the scans she did of it, which were left behind uh, just in this line by whatever tools were used, whatever tools they used uh, to sharpen this stone to sharpen. 
Uh, the next item is doesn't really seem to be much of anything. I don't really get much definitive on what they even say it was. However, Emma mentions that the metallurgy of it is close in her mind to that of the William Phipps artifacts. Now, as interesting as that is, the problem I have here is that the show provides no context whatsoever for this information, meaning what does it say that the metallurgy is close? Is that important in any way? What could that mean? Since none of those questions were discussed, I'll just assume it means nothing, right? It means it's a miss. <clears throat> so later, the archaeologists are back at work at lot five, and they are at this circular foundation structure that they've been looking at. And they find some pottery that's from around the 1600s and what looks like possibly a staircase in the stones leading down into whatever this structure is, assuming like a staircase leading into a basement, right? There's more to come on this for sure as the excavation continues and we get a better look at the totality of what this is. So next, Jamie Kuba finds a really cool glass bead, like for a necklace or a bracelet. So we've got pottery and we've got jewelry. I mean... <sighs> From what I'm starting to see here, this certainly doesn't seem like a military installation. It seems more like a home, right? It's fascinating because it's a home that's not documented. So it's really interesting to have this. Ginger on the Patreon asked of this bead, are we sure the bead isn't something the Mi'kmaq wore? Ginger, my guess, and believe me when I tell you, this is just a guess, is that I think Laird Niven would recognize that right away. I think he's got a pretty good frame of reference for that kind of thing. Did the Mi'kmaq even make glass? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. It's an interesting thought. But again, for the time being, I'm going to lean on Laird for this. I, I, I think that he would know right away and know the consequences of having this bead on the air in front of millions of people and not identifying it or proceeding as if it could be Mi'kmaq. I mean, that would be a difficult thing politically for the guys. Now, Let's quickly head to the swamp where work for the episode begins with the team still digging underneath the road between the swamp and the ocean, and they're looking for the continuation of the famous, the now famous stone path. The guys find another piece of chain, a big iron spike, and then another spike stuck into a piece of wood. It's really cool stuff. Looks like possibly a shipwreck washed up here, right? Or parts of it. Now, later, Gary pulls out yet another spike, which he says is wrought iron from the 1700s. Here, the narration hits me with one of my biggest pet peeves of the writing on this show, so obviously I can't help myself. The narrator proclaims it as, quote-unquote, potentially ancient. Folks, maybe I'm just acting like a stodgy old English teacher here, but 1700s is not ancient. It's old, but it's not ancient. Ancient has a meaning. Anyway, I digress. Later, Carmen Legg comes to the island in a fabulous hat. I love this hat he wears now. To take a look at the hook and chain they found under the swamp road. And also one of the spikes. With regards to the spikes, he says that it's instead not a spike, but a tool, which he calls a set. Which was something, I guess, to make a spike flush with the plank you're driving into it. Driving it into. I'm not really sure. I'm not a shipbuilder or a blacksmith. So don't ask me, but you, you get an idea of what it is from what he said there. But the weird thing comes when Carmen starts talking about this hook and chain. He says the hook is very old, pre-1650, but that much but that much of the chain is actually machine made. So definitely modern, you know. Um I, I don't really know the details of that stuff. 
um, because they don't discuss how modern it could be, but it certainly has to be post-1800s, so definitely not original depositor stuff. But what confuses me is why would somebody in the past, some even in the 1900s, right, why would somebody have taken a piece of chain and connected it to a 200-year-old hook? Now, Carmen says chains like this would be used to to lower and raise cargo. Of course they are. That's what hooks and chains are for. And it's as fascinating as that is, the problem is the chain is modern. This one kind of flummoxed me a bit. I, I mean, it's clearly not something related to pre-1795, but it certainly is strange. It's time now to head to the money pit. Things are clearly not going well at the garden shaft. Uh, and you'll see at the money pit in general. So Marty, Rick, and Craig are in the war room to start this all off with a for a video conference with the sort of, you know, chiefs at the Dumas Mining Company who are doing the work here. The long and short of what Dumas tells the guys is that the timeline for completion of the garden shaft expansion down to 95 feet to take it down that extra feet, that extra few feet to get towards this potential tunnel is now significantly being pushed back. Apparently, they have another group of guys coming on or people coming on, experts to the island to assist in trying to seal off the the outer walls of the shaft. And it's going to take some time to complete all that and proceed possibly into the fall which now gets me starting to wonder if it's going to take even longer than that and maybe get pushed back even into next summer after all said and done. The guys are determined to see this project through, but it isn't looking good. I mean, another shaft project aborted by flooding underground on Oak Island. It's a very old story being retold for us again today. What a great show. Anyway, so while Dumas is working to seal off the garden shaft, the guys decide to explore the possibility of putting one of those big caissons down into Aladdin's cave, possibly to get a better look around. More on that in a bit. But the next thing we see is a new borehole labeled KL-15, and it's going down into the area of the cave, this Aladdin's cave. But again, problems start to arise for the team. The sample from about 148 feet, I think is what they said, is just sludge which Terry Matheson says seems to indicate part of the cave has already collapsed on itself. I mean, honestly, this was not a good week for the fellowship over at the Money Pit. Elizabeth on the Patreon remarked, quote, just what they need, another collapse. I mean, right now, you know, you're 100% right, Elizabeth. Right now, things are just not looking good over here at all, plain and simple. But this is the Money Pit. We can honestly ask, when have things ever looked good for treasure hunters at the Money Pit? I can answer that for you. Never. So later on in the show, we have a war room meeting, another one, with this one with uh, Paul Troutman, Steve Guptill, and Dr. Ian Spooner, the Swamp Doctor. They're here to present the team with data and some more imaging from Aladdin's cave. And uh, the first thing they show us is a sort of a cleaned up image of what looks possibly like a bolt. You remember this from a couple of weeks ago, right, when they first sent that camera down there. It certainly looks weird to me. It's a weird shape for something natural, but with all of the you know, the weird lighting you have in these situations and the, and the, and the, um, the shadowing effect that goes on for these underwater images, it just doesn't look definitive enough for me to pass any judgment on it until we kind of get a better look. Now, having said all that, it 
is the most intriguing thing I see here. Um, you know, at least to this point. Anyway, let's continue on. Next, they show an image of the walls of the cave and what the guys call a quote-unquote pretty clean right angle in the stones. The implication here, I guess, is that it all indicates something man-made. That at least that part of the cave was man-made. I'm not sure about that one. I, I don't really see enough there to think that. Now, next we get some, some, some more sonar imaging of the potential opening to the cave that they've been talking about for quite some time now. And again, I got to say this, guys. I, I'm not trying to be burst any more bubbles here, but it all looks pretty natural to me. I mean, I'm just not seeing it here. Dr. Spooner makes a comment about how he thinks the cave is connected to man-made features. But honestly, it's hard for me to understand why exactly he said that, what he meant by that. He's not pointing out any specific things that tell him he's connected to it. So I don't even know what he's talking about. If you guys picked up anything on that, like on how they're trying to make this sound, use the word man-made as often as possible, let me know. Maybe I'm missing something in my watching of the show. I don't know. So in the end, the guys decide after all of this that they are indeed going to put down this caisson, this big can, into the cave. And I got to tell you, I'm really kind of shocked by that decision. I mean, at least to this point, I've seen nothing at all in any of these images or these sonar scans save for what might possibly be the end of a bolt that makes me think this cave is anything more than a natural underground formation. And it certainly doesn't seem at this point worthy of the incredible expense that they want to put into getting down there with one of these caissons. Hey, listen, I'm here to see the guys prove me wrong. I'm all for it. That's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I know it might have been a little tough today. Uh, this bronchial thing is killing me. Uh, it is getting a lot better, so that is a good thing. Uh, but thank you so much for your patience with all of that. Don't forget, you can really help the show out by going to become a patron. If you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Also, if you'd like to help out the podcast in another way, then you could do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And a big thank you to everyone who's done that, guys. Thank you so much for the kind words and for taking the time out of your day to do it. You can also follow the show on Facebook. And again, I've got quite a lot of stuff I'm going to be putting up there. If you don't see it right away, just give it some time. Check over the weekend, and I'll have it up there. Uh, if you want to find us, if you're not already following us, go to your search bar right in Digging Oak Island. And then you could find us there. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you could do so via email at digginoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, I may just answer here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud to everyone, just got to make a note of that for me so I don't forget. And I'll answer it right on the email there. Folks, it is definitely crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for listening to Digging Oak Island.